We are back with our second guest in this hour. Glad to have him back on the program. He is Ian Milheiser. Ian is a senior constitutional policy analyst at the Center for American Progress. He's also the editor of Think Progress Justice, author of Injustices, the Supreme Court's nearly unbroken history of comforting the comfortable and afflicting the afflicted. Ian, more than a pleasure to have you back with us. Good afternoon and welcome. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. Well, terrorism took the front page, and we were talking with the guests this past half hour about women in combat, which a lot of people were like, huh, what happened last week? But also something that took place was the U.S. Supreme Court giving a nod, some would say, to an assault weapons ban. Uh, The U.S. Supreme Court at least appeared to back lawmakers who want to restrict the type of guns Guns like semi-automatic assault weapons that have been used in recent mass shootings. The vote was seven to two. Tell us, first of all, how this case reached the Supreme Court and what those on either side were seeking or defending. Sure. So this was was a Chicago suburb. They passed a law banning assault rifles and uh, high-capacity bullet clips. And the Supreme Court didn't actually uphold the law. What happened here is that a lower court upheld the law. The Supreme Court was asked to reconsider that decision or to, to consider that decision. And on Monday, they announced over the objections of two justices that they won't hear the case. So the good news is that means that the lower court's decision stands. The assault rifle ban will not be struck down, at least at, the, at, the, at this time. Um, and the very conservative Roberts Court just isn't going to get it on this game. The bad news is that the court not taking a case is very different from them actually ruling the way they, you want them to rule. When they rule the way you want them to rule, that's a precedential opinion. It binds all the lower courts. All that this means is that they didn't feel like hearing this case right now. But the bad news is that if another case comes down or if another court disagrees with the court that upheld the law, then it becomes very likely that the Supreme Court will hear this case. And, and so that we people understand, obviously, the fight that comes in opposition, whether it's with the lower court, um, as you said, the Supreme Court upheld that lower court's uh, ruling that decision, or whether it's the Supreme Court, pretty much in any gun case comes to they're trying to infringe upon my Second Amendment rights, dot, 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 so that people understand where does a ban on semi-automatic weapons fall or lie when it comes to the Second Amendment in our Constitution? The answer to that is actually fairly difficult right now, at least if you believe what the Supreme Court has told us about the Second Amendment. Um, So the Supreme Court, in a case called Heller, said that dangerous and unusual weapons, this was the seminal case that blew up everything that had existed in uh, the Second Amendment law up to this point, and said that, yes, there actually is an individual right to own guns, and that laid out some of the framework for, for how far it goes. They said that dangerous and unusual weapons can be banned. And so, you know, one question here is whether or not an assault rifle counts as a dangerous and unusual weapon. The plaintiffs and Justice Thomas, in an opinion that he handed down on, on Monday, argued that actually there's a whole lot of people out there running around with, with assault rifles, so they're not unusual, and therefore they can't be banned. But if that's actually what the law says, if that's what the Supreme Court is going to say it says, that leads to, to us to a really scary place. You know, you know, let's say that Congress repealed the ban on machine guns. The only thing that would have to happen for the NRA 
to make sure that that ban could never be reinstated is they just have to get a whole lot of gunners to go out and buy a whole lot of machine guns, and then all of a sudden they aren't unusual anymore. And so that would that would suggest that they can't be banned. So it's it's a very frightening rule with very frightening implications that. Um, the, these litigants and that Justice Thomas and Justice Scalia are pushing. The problem is that, you know, again, if you agree with what the Supreme Court said in Heller, it's not entirely clear to me who should win this issue. And when we look at these types of issues, especially when we have, like we, you know, did this past week, the attacks that took 14 lives in San Bernardino here in Southern California, um, do you do you think that we're going to get more uh, challenges and more cases brought forth because that this is such an emotionally charged and polarized topic? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt we're going to see more of these cases. And what, and especially because there's also a lot more gun owners, right? Every time you know right. somebody gets shot in this country or certainly any time there's a terrorist attack or even the threat of a terrorist attack, people flock to the gun shops. I mean, actually, I think that gun ownership is trending downward. The issue is that the people who do own guns are becoming more and more rabid about it. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that suggests that, you know, people are really going to want to protect their, their ability to go out and get an assault rifle. You know, I think this case is inevitably going to wind up in the Supreme Court because eventually what's going to happen is that someone's going to manage to get a challenge to one of these laws in front of a very conservative court of appeals panel. And whenever two courts of appeals disagree, so like in the lower court that upheld this ban is the Seventh Circuit, which oversees Illinois and a few other states. There's, you know, a whole bunch of other circuits out there. There, there, there There's 11 other circuits out there where someone could potentially bring a case and get a very conservative panel that's willing to say that, no, actually, we think that you can't have an assault rifle ban. And once two courts of appeals disagree with each other, this almost certainly gets a ticket up to the Supreme Court, where I think the outcome is very uncertain. Were you surprised the Supreme Court upheld uh, this decision? And do you think that the Supreme Court at some point is going to have no choice but to uh, stop, in, in, in a sense, deflecting? I, mean, I, I was worried. When I when I saw this was a case that they were considering, I mean, after a while, they sat on it for so long that it became less likely they were going to take it. But I was really worried because it seemed very much like the sort of case that they would take just because, you know, this politically charged issue and there, you know, there is some uncertainty in the law. There was a dissent in the, in the lower court. Um, so it seemed like the sort of case that they might want take. You know, I think a lot of what's going on here, I mean, Scalia and Thomas were the ones who who joined the opinion said they should have taken it. And I think that those two justices, um, you know, they really are gung-ho about the guns issue, and they really are eager to see the Second Amendment grow and swallow up a lot of walls. I think that Roberts and maybe Alito and maybe Kennedy um, are, you know, will typically follow the party line when confronted with the guns case, but I don't know if they have the same cultural attachment to guns um, that other people do. So, like, the best thing, at least as long as we've got the court that we have, is to hope that Roberts and, and, and Kennedy maybe will say, you know, like, I don't really want to touch this issue, and that it will, you know, it'll not come up until we have a change of membership in the court that makes it more likely it will have a better Second Amendment decision. And so that people understand 
Um, you know, state by state, things vary. I live here in California, which is the strictest gun control in the United mm-hmm. States, or so they say. But there are even within this state gray areas. Example, you can't purchase certain semi-automatic weapons in the state of California, but you can own them, which means you can go to a right. state like Arizona or Nevada, and then you can purchase them. Uh, do you think some of these interstate purchases versus possessions, in a sense, make it inevitable that the Supreme Court's going to have to say, all right, we're going to hear this case. I mean, I don't know if it necessarily makes it inevitable they need to hear the case, but it points to why we need federal gun law. I, I mean, the issue is that we don't have closed borders in this country. You know, some, like, you know, the example that people who want there to be more gun rights always point to, and they, they, like, they love to point at Chicago and say, look, Chicago's got really strict gun laws, and yet it has a lot of gun violence, and that's true. But the reason why is I think over 40% of the guns in Chicago come from out of state, and the bulk of the remainder come from, in fact, I think all of the remainder at one point came from surrounding counties um, around Chicago that don't have the same gun laws. So, you know, you can have all the gun laws that you want. You can ban the sale of guns in California, and it's not going to make very much difference if someone can just cross the border to, to, to Nevada and get all the guns they want and then bring them home with I wonder if, in fact, the NRA is already planning in advance of some of these cases that aren't coming before the Supreme Court yet uh, that you and I agree are inevitable. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be hard for the Supreme Court to stay out of this space forever. I mean, it does seem to me right now that most of the justices just don't want to touch this issue right now, and I think that's the best explanation for why they didn't hear that this, this one case is, um, you know, I think that Roberts in particular, Chief Justice Roberts, tends to like to keep the court out of politics if he can, unless it's an issue that... Ian, you realize really there are people pulling over on the road laughing in your last remark on that right now. <laughs> well, no, I mean, let me finish the sentence, which is unless, you know, it's an issue that he cares a great deal about. Right. So, you know, it, on race, he, like, wants the court to be as aggressive in, as possible in striking down many civil rights laws. Um, you know, there's a lot of corporate issues that he, cares a great, that, that he cares a great deal about. But, you know, I think the reason that you can explain why he didn't do the wrong thing in the health care cases, for the most part, is because it wasn't really an issue that he cared that much about, so he decided to do the non-political thing. And, and I think he, he mostly feels that way about guns, where... If a gun case comes before him and he has to reach a decision, he's probably going to reach the wrong decision. But I think it's not an issue he cares all that much about. So he wants to, uh, you know, he'd he'd rather avoid it if he can. With this decision, immediately, because it's such an emotionally polarized and, you know, very charged issue, we have people that are, you know, of the very pro-gun control, we need more gun control movement, you know, the, the, the Brady campaign mindset, that this was a victory. And you say not so fast. Yeah, I mean, I, I say that this was at least a stay of execution. I, <laughs> I think that at the very least what this decision means is that we won't be getting really terrible news in June when the Supreme Court hands down all of the big cases for this term. Um 
but it doesn't mean that uh, you know it doesn't mean that the, the people who passed this law have won. It you know it means that this issue still looming, and that in the next case, the case after that, it, it could wind up in front of the Supreme Court. And when it does, you know, we still have a very conservative Supreme Court. Because the Second Amendment is, is vague in many you know, mm-hmm. aspects. And I, I'm sure that if we could dig the founding fathers up and go, hey, quick question. <laughs> yeah. And certainly they didn't have a crystal ball and the clairvoyance to see the type of weaponry that we would have uh, now yeah. in a present day, a modern day. Um, are there any areas that you have seen courts rule on with, with regard to guns in the Second Amendment, where there's just no question that the Second Amendment, uh, you know, stands and is um, specific enough, and I say that because right. it's so vague. I, I mean, example, I mean, yeah. you know, semi-automatic weapons, the amount of, you know, if if you can have background checks, I mean, things like this are all up for grabs. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Second Amendment, you know, it has two clauses, and it's completely unclear how they're supposed to work together. So the first clause refers to uh, a well-regulated militia. The whole purpose of this Second Amendment is to permit a well-regulated militia. And then the second one says that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And so, you know, one question that up until Heller everyone thought was decided was, was that, yes, there's some sort of right that's protected by the Second Amendment, but whatever the right to keep and bear arms is, it's something related to malicious service, because that's what the Supreme Court says it is. Correct. And in, in Heller, they completely changed the rules, and, and they, they said that actually the purpose of the right to keep and bear arms is to permit, is to permit self-defense, so you can carry a handgun around, and I guess if you think someone's threatening you, you can shoot them. Um, and, you know, if I were to write an amendment, that was intended to protect people's self-defense, I would write that to say the right of the people to self-defense being necessary to a free state, uh, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And that's not what the framers wrote. So, you know, a lot of it comes down to, I mean, I don't know that there are any answers that are certain when it comes to the Second Amendment. Um, you know, unless you're asking me, like, should you be allowed to bear muskets for purpose of for the purpose of serving in a colonial mission? Would have changed that, anything? Yeah, yeah. Right. that's but, funny. But, but, yeah, but beyond that, you know, beyond front-loading muskets, there really are no certainties um, when it comes to the Second Amendment. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with our guest. We're glad to have him with us. Uh, you can follow Ian on Twitter at e- i Milheiser. That's I M I L. L-H-I-S-E-R. And also follow Think Progress, the Center for American Progress at Think Progress. The website for Think Progress is thinkprogress.org, also americanprogress.org. And Ian's book is entitled Injustices, the Supreme Court's Nearly Unbroken History of Comforting the Comfortable and Afflicting the Afflicted. We'll be back right after this with Senior Constitutional Policy Analyst at the Center for American Progress and the editor of Think Progress Justice. Leslie Marshall, the simple truth in a complicated world. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE.
We're back with our guest, Ian Milheiser. Ian's a senior constitutional policy analyst at the Center for American Progress. He's also editor of Think Progress Justice. Ian, thanks for holding. Uh, welcome back. Um, let's talk about uh, more. You would, you know, talk if you can elaborate a bit. I, th- I think you've been comprehensive, but people are tuning in every few minutes to talk radio, especially. Um, why? This concerns you for the future, this uh, nod, if you will, to the ban, but in a sense, a pass, like you right. said, a stay of execution. Right. So I mean, well, let's talk briefly about the last decade or so of history of the Second Amendment. Um, so, I mean, it's really more than a decade here. Like almost 100 years ago, the Supreme Court read the Second Amendment very narrowly. Um, they suggested that it primarily protects a collective right that's, again, tied to the fact that the amendment refers to militia service. Um, and that the sort of weapons that should be protected, if anything, were the sort of things that were used in militia service. Um, and then in 2008, the court blew that up. And in 2008, they held for the first time in American history that it protects an individual right to own a gun, that that right is key to personal self-defense. And then they offered some vague ideas as to what the restrictions on that right are. They said that um, dangerous and unusual weapons are not allowed. They said that you can keep the weapons out of what they called sensitive places. They said that bans on firearm ownership by criminals and the mentally ill. Um, are still okay. So what you have is you have essentially a very new area of the law, because despite the fact that the Second Amendment's been around for more than 200 years, the court only started to read it this way in 2008. There's only been two Supreme Court cases under this regime, and all of these vague terms that I just told you, dangerous or unusual weapons, um, you know, sensitive places, haven't been defined yet. So what you see going on now in the lower court is the lower court is that the NRA and groups like them are trying to bring the most aggressive Second Amendment challenges they can because they want to lock in really aggressive Second Amendment law while there's still a very conservative Supreme Court, while the five justices who joined the majority in Heller are still around. Um, and if they get to bring these cases up to this Supreme Court, I think there's, there's good reason to be worried, because there's a lot of language in that Heller opinion which suggests that you know the question of what is a dangerous or unusual weapon could be read very narrowly. The question of what is a sensitive place could be written could be read very narrowly, and suddenly, you know, things like these assault rifle bans could be struck down. So, you know, I know you know Dan Gross, president of the Brady Center and Campaign to Prevent Gun Violence. He's been a guest here on the show. He's obviously very vocal, and we're all, you know, very aware and familiar with what Brady Center uh, does, believes, mm-hmm. and tries to accomplish. And he said, and I quote: "By rejecting this case, the Supreme Court sided with a community that has taken action to protect itself from the type of violence we've seen in San Bernardino on college campuses and in movie theaters." And you say, "That's nice, Dan. You can try and believe that. But that's not really what this is about, obviously." Yeah, I mean, it is still good news for people yes. who want there to be, um, you know, fairly reasonably robust gun laws. I mean, the court could have taken the case and they could have done something that would have been really bad for people who want there to be restrictions on firearm ownership. And they did not do that. They decided we are going to leave the status quo in place for now. Um, but the fact that they said they're going to leave the status quo in place for now is not the same thing as them affirmatively deciding 
you know, this is what we think the Second Amendment says, and it says that assault rifle bans are allowed. And until we get that, we're in trouble. All right, Ian, thank you. We love having you. Ian Milheiser's our buddy. He'll be back with us, and so will you after this break.